Hey, Bina. Hi, Corey. So good to see you. Yeah, great to see you. Man, it's, we, are, we are so overdue for one of these. I know. It's been weeks, months. I've lost track. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a minute. But um, man, <laughs> a lot has happened since you and I have talked. <laughs> yes, yes, sure. We're in extraordinary times. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. And um, well, I'm so glad that you could join us today um, to talk about, you know, basically what we're going to be discussing today is uh, reactions to this coronavirus pandemic, really healthy and unhealthy reactions that are emerging all the way up and down the spiral of development. And um, I think that this is going to be a fascinating and very, very helpful conversation for all of us. And I love sort of, um, you know, it seems kind of auspicious to me that we're doing this today on Earth Day. Yes, um, yes, which is yeah. you know really wonderful, and we're going to be um, you know because I think so much of what we're going to be discussing here really comes down to our sort of planetary human immune response to this pandemic, and we're sp responding in all sorts of ways. Um, again, both healthy and unhealthy, and um, I think that this this conversation is going to help us um, sort of better track where we are at any given moment. Um, sort of give us a better sense of um, what a more healthy response maybe looks like, role modeling some healthy responses for us. And then, you know, really getting into um, sort of how we can uh, find more connection, more meaning, even a little bit of purpose uh, throughout all of this. So I think it's going to be really, really <laughs> exciting. And um, I'm very happy that we have Suzanne Cook Reuter with us today yes, as well. Yes. Thank we'll you say, for joining, Suzanne. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, just to mention, it is Earth Day, and I just wanted to share, um, my daughter actually just wrote her very first haiku today. Oh, wow. Let's is, hear it. Which is very sweet. Yeah. So today she wrote, <laughs> nature is awesome. It helps us live happily. The earth is lovely. Oh. And, you know, my eyes kind of watered when I read that. Um, so I think that's a nice, that's a nice way for us to start, start because, you know, the, the earth is lovely and nature is awesome. Yeah. And of course, this pandemic is part of the awesomeness of nature. Um, so yeah, um, Bina, I'm just going to hand it over to you. Um, where would you like to start? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I guess what I'd like to say is um, the one of the purposes for presenting what I'm going to present today is for people to uh, be able to relate better to the different stages of development and um, in some ways to humanize the model. Um, you know, when we read about stages, um, we want to be at the later stage, we self-identify at later stages. They can be ideas, they can be concepts, they can be abstract um, aspects that we uh, aspire to, and yet we are um, in some ways may not be integrated. And um, so my hope is that people who are listening and watching can begin to alchemize this abstract theory through their own experience, through understanding a little bit more about the stages. How do they show up and what do they feel like? You know, we're all seeing and listening and hearing and reading so much and there's so much out there to even um, process. Um, so I'm hoping that um, this, the lens of these stages of development, the way we describe it uh, in the leadership maturity framework will help people um, make sense of the sense making that is going on from the different stages of development. 
And I'd like to start off with some gratitude uh, uh, to Suzanne for uh, being my colleague and teacher and mentor and for really establishing the ethics and the integrity of this work and uh, rooting it in our human experience. This is not some theory out there that um, we are trying to learn about. This is um, something that gives us a window into who we are as human beings. Um, so I'd like to start off with that. And I'm um, going to go through a presentation. So there are slides. Some of you who are on the phone may not see it, but maybe you will be able to catch most of it. Um, and if you see the recording, then you'll see some of the visuals I'm using. Um, I'll go through uh, a little bit of the background of vertical development and the maturity framework. And then I'll look at um, how each stage tends to respond to a situation like this. And I must say the caveat is this is an unprecedented situation. And so we can't predict everything and it really is a confounding situation. I myself feel in over my head and um, I have experienced anxiety I've never experienced in my life. So it's, um, I don't want to present it as if, you know, I know everything that's going on and here's a way to look at it. That's not the spirit in which this is, in, in which I'm presenting this. This is more um, a curating of a few things that I've heard and seen and then sharing some um, perspective um, that I have on it. And also supporting people to use the framework to better understand what's going on. So I will share my, uh, my, I'll begin my slideshow. Awesome. Um, can you see my screen? Sure can. Well, okay. All right. So the title is Making Sense of the Sense-Making in Our Current Time. Um, the flow of the conversation is rather simple, so I'll talk a little bit about the basics of vertical development, um, talk a bit about the leadership maturity framework, and then making sense of responses, and then we will have a reflection. We'll have some reflections, uh, you know, live in the group that's joined us, and then some dialogue, and Suzanne will join us uh, also in the dialogue. Um, so I always like to start off with the basics and I know this is integral life and everybody knows this and it's still good to reiterate that when we talk about human development, we make this distinction between horizontal and vertical development. Horizontal development is when we're developing our skills, we, we, are, we are adding information and knowledge without it necessarily shifting our worldview or the way we make sense of things. Uh, it doesn't change our belief system. It doesn't challenge some fundamental assumptions we might be holding uh, about ourselves and the world and others. Whereas vertical development is when we continue to grow and then there are times in our life we suddenly are upon a new, um, a, a new stage of understanding something in a different way. Uh, we may have gone through a life experience and um, we may have had ideas about it that didn't fit reality. So reality pushes us to, uh, to reinterpret what's going on. And, for, and then it, in some ways, compels us to come up with a new way to explain what is going on. And we come into a new stage. 
So vertical development changes our interpretation of experience very, um, very distinctively. And I think we all know, we've all had those experiences where we feel that we are not who we were before whatever happened, before that experience. And vertical development is rarer. Um, so oh, I want to go back. Um, in some ways, this is a hot topic, uh, you know, in, in today's times, because more and more people are interested in uh, vertical development, more and more people are claiming to do vertical uh, development. And, um, you know, I wouldn't argue with anybody that's claiming to do that, because fundamentally, any development uh, input, any development process is going to support our vertical development. And yet uh, we can be more explicit about it and we can be more clear about exactly how we're doing it and, and uh, what are the milestones that get us, what are the shifts in perspectives that get us to that next level of understanding. Um, in our framework, um, we use the ego as the central construct. So it's based on ego development theory, which was developed by Jane Lovinger and which was then further um, advanced by Suzanne. Um, uh, it's important for us to define the word ego because ego is a big word and it has many different connotations and meanings. Um, so in this theory, we look at the ego as having two aspects. So the first is that the ego is the, that aspect of ourselves that's trying to make meaning, trying to understand. So all human beings create maps of reality. If we, didn't, if we couldn't explain what was going on, we'd be very disoriented. So that part of ourselves that is trying to get us oriented and, and create meaning, that is the ego. And um, as it creates meaning, it tells a story. It tells a story about what is going on. It tells a story about the self, which is the identity. And it creates the self story and identity. And as this meaning making evolves, it tells a new story because reality will question um, its idea about, you know, itself and about its interpretation. And then the ego has to make new meaning. And so this is the way the evolution of the individual happens through the ego's sense-making advancing through various levels of perspective. Um, and I think this is an important thing to note that other theories don't have the central, other vertical development theories don't have the central construct of the self or the ego. And um, I think that's distinctive about this framework. And what I like about it is also, it seems to be a good bridge uh, into the wisdom traditions where there is um, um, you know, a left-handed wisdom and understanding of the construct of the self. Um, and so to me, it's, in, it's an integrative vertical development theory as compared to other theories that, um, in some ways, they don't have a top end that can connect to uh, the wisdom tradition. So that's my personal, um, in some ways, um, personal um, like, you know, I like that. I like that thing about this theory. Um, so the ego's function is to tell a coherent story and to create a map of reality. So he here is our um, eight level framework. Um, we can say a few things. Uh, so we can say that um, 
Everybody starts at the beginning of the journey. You can't skip a stage. Later can understand earlier stages, not vice versa. And um, Susanna, I want to call you anything else you want to say about just a few fundamental tenets. It takes a long time to shift uh, unless you have a sort of a transformative experience. But most change happens over time. It's not so sudden. It's uh, transitions from one to the other, adding more or not more till your meaning making system can't handle the dilemmas and the opposite uh, information that comes in. And then you re have to reframe. What else is there? Yeah, and thank you. Not everybody, grows to say. Not everybody grows through the end of all the stages. People settle in uh, into the stage that is best supported by their environment. And um, in sorry, the yeah. culture makes a big difference. Our Western modern cultures really emphasize up to the achiever stage and not beyond the self-governing self-determining stage and anybody who moves beyond is in some ways on their own except those who are part of the integral scene which have then uh, number a tribe to belong to but it's hard it's hard to go beyond in most situations thank you Suzanne and here's another representation of the stages of development represented in the arc um, so you can see on the left side are the conventional stages. The right side is the post-conventional stages. Left side, the focus is more on knowledge and knowing more and doing more and predicting and measuring. Whereas the right side in post-conventional understanding, we are concerned about understanding this more deeply, both ourselves, the interior and the exterior, recognizing our assumptions and seeing the dynamics. And um, you can also see that the left side stages are more, um, more differentiated in some ways, and there's greater integration that happens, uh, which is part of the thing that is representing the downward um, turn of the arc. And you can see from the numbers that 80 to 85% of the general population um, do come from the conventional mindset. So coming into a post-conventional view is a developmental achievement. And remember that all stages are idealizations. Um, nobody inhabits a whole stage in, all, in its entirety. Um, stage theory is a description of a meta pattern of development. And every human being is a unique idiosyncratic pattern of the meta pattern. So this meta pattern is very useful and we cannot have it limit us, limit our understanding. And in some ways, the human being is way bigger than any pattern that we can, uh, we can actually even define. And so I do wanna say this, um, it's very important that we do not reduce people to stage to a stage of development and that we don't reduce the framework uh, um, rather we don't reduce the individual to just this framework um, that's a big caveat and that is one of the uh, fundamental ethical principles that we stand by um, so just a good metaphor to describe this whole process. The ladder represents the rungs of development. Each rung is a different stage of development. The climber is the ego that is 
navigating reality and stepping into newer and newer and more expanded perspectives, the view from each stage is distinctly different. And as I said, earlier stages cannot understand the view that they don't yet have access to, whereas later stages are able to understand earlier stages. So there's the climber, the view, and then there's the climbing. And this is something that we are really focused on at Veda. We're interested in what is this process? What are the movements? And uh, how can we support and challenge ourselves and other people in, in enabling vertical development? The idea is not to push people. Uh, the next stage is not a goal. We do see vertical development as a good outcome of healthy horizontal development. So those two are also a polarity and they are inter, um, interdependent, interconnected. And I'm always touched by the fact that we have this available now uh, to guide us as a heuristic, as, an, um, you know, as a path to be illuminated. Because Jane Lovinger, who originally developed it, forbid the use of this um, into an, you know, in any other area other than academic research. So this is a great gift available to us um, as a resource. And I feel it's our responsibility to use the best that we know through research and through um, you know, thought leaders uh, to apply this um, to our own understanding. Uh, one thing that we have been continuing to do is um, getting a better grasp of each stage of development um, and defining what, what I call footholds of development. So it's not abstract. And uh, a foothold is just something you identify with. It's something that you hold on to um, that defines who you are. And as uh, you get more integrated and as you step into new realities, you know, you loosen your grip on that foothold and then you can reach for what is next for you. So uh, we see each stage as a constellation of uh, um, developmental tasks and footholds that we all need to navigate and that we have to, in some ways, um, go through before we can step into a new stage. We can't skip that. And of course, this journey is messy. We don't touch all the footholds. We may not be able to integrate all of them, but we may have integrated enough and then a part of us can reach, uh, reach ahead while parts of us are still identified by the earlier footholds. Um, you know, real, real briefly, do, um, do those footholds, does, does that correspond to uh, like when Ken Wilber talks about lines of development? Not really. These are, these are actually beliefs that we are identified by, which are part of our worldview. So I'll give a couple of examples and that'll get clearer. Lines of development um, are more um, dimensions of development, like my emotional line, my, uh, cognitive line of development and the footholds are more, uh, more beliefs and identifications. Mm. Um, you're familiar with polarities. So of course we look at um, integrating polarities in our understanding of adult development. Uh, Suzanne and I have written a paper on that, on looking at how each stage has some preferences that are determined by that worldview and they neglect the other pole and integration then can support vertical development. So um, the integral model is a great example of two polarities, the external and the internal. And you can see this difference at the higher level in, the, in our framework where all the, con the conventional stages are generally more external oriented. 
And when you move into post-conventional, one of the big milestones is you become, you turn inward and you focus more internally. Um, we also look at uh, polarities at each stage of development and some of our support and coaching helps people be more integrated. And so you can see this word integrated will keep coming. And integration is an important uh, aspect of, health, of healthy vertical development. So here's an illustration of some footholds. Um, so at stage three at the group centric self, um, which would be blue in spiral dynamics, the identification is with the other, aligning with what is expected of me. And um, if that's the foothold, then development for this, for someone at this stage would involve finding my voice. What do I really think? And how do I, um, how do I even find what I want or articulate what I want? Now you'll notice the polarity here, aligning with the other, finding my voice. So integrating the self in this helps that group centric, uh, um, the individual at the group centric stage to then um, not be, uh, not overdoing the conforming um, aspect. At the skill centric stage, we are defined by what we know and our knowledge are being certain and that's one of the footholds. And so helping the skill centric stage would mean helping them seeking other views that contradict their own and then finding a way to integrate those two. So you'll see that's also a polarity. And at the self-determining stage of the orange, um, there's a big uh, investment in predicting outcomes, making things happen, changing things. At this stage then, um, if that's the foothold, movement at this stage would involve inviting them to sense what's emerging rather than predicting what is going to happen based on their own understanding of patterns. So those are some examples. So hope that clarifies the difference between lines of development and footholds. Yeah, very helpful, thank you. Sorry, welcome. Um, so you all know that we use a measure called the MAP, which is the Maturity Assessment Profile, which gives you a cent your center of gravity, it measures your levels of maturity and gives you a stage. And so we, uh, without taking away the integrity of that measure and the stage of development, when we are supporting individuals, we have a tri-stage approach or a tri-stage appreciation. And I'm sure when you look at this, Corey, you can relate to it. There are parts of ourselves that are still operating at the previous stage. We have a current stage where we are automatically making sense of our life. And then some parts of ourselves are already beginning to explore the next stage. And um, these little squirrely things are footholds. So if you look at the earlier stage, you can see there are some footholds that I haven't navigated or I may have rejected consciously. And so part of my vertical development would involve going back and integrating aspects that I rejected or aspects that I'm still identified by. So this gives us a developmental profile. This makes it um, uh, this gives us a simple heuristic. So if I'm coaching you, I can, if I can identify one thing at an earlier stage that you're still identified by, one thing at a current stage that you can expand into new areas, and one aspect at the next stage that you can begin to embody, uh, I have a developmental plan for you. 
And so we can get pretty granular uh, once we identify the footholds and uh, we have your map assessment. I talked earlier about the climbing. Uh, so these are developmental movements that we define. Again, we've identified 10 of them and these are five just again as an illustrative list. Uh, remember the ladder. So consolidation is when you arrive at a new rung and you um, consolidate. You get comfortable with that worldview. You expand that understanding into areas, new areas of your life. Transition is when you've left the previous rung and you're now going to step into the next. And you're neither, in some ways, neither here nor there, which is a difficult place to be. How I coach somebody who is in a consolidation movement will be quite different from how I coach somebody who is in transition. We all know fallback. We fall back to an earlier way of uh, uh, reacting uh, and we know it when that happens because we tell ourselves, there I go again. We are aware of it, but we fall back. Uplift, uh, I'll just jump one. Uplift is when we are flying a little bit higher. You know, you go into an, you come into an integral show, you listen to Ken, you know, you go to a program and you meet somebody inspiring or Sometimes it can just be the end of a tough period in your life when the pressures lift and you suddenly feel more light and you begin to um, access some of the insights of uh, what you've experienced and you come into new ways of uh, making meaning of your experiences and that can be an uplift too. Um, so when somebody is an uplift, the work is how do I integrate that? Is it just espoused? Do I come back like a rubber band to who I used to be? Or how do I embody that? And being stuck is when I really feel stuck. I wanna move and I don't quite know how, but there's developmental energy for me to move. So these are some movements, some of the movements that give you a little bit more of a glimpse into this process of climbing. Again, this is uh, quite distinctive in our work. I, um, I haven't heard other developmental models that describe uh, specific movements and have specific um, attention in the coaching process to the movements. Uh, I've already mentioned the map. We have a measure that is the most uh, widely researched and validated measure and um, Suzanne's seminal work has involved in adding um, the criteria for the later stages of development, being able to measure that Lovinger didn't have. And the manuals that we have are continuously being updated. Uh, you have the, we have the largest database, 14,000 plus maps. Um, so that is a huge body of work that we're sitting on. Again, the purpose of this, what is the purpose of measuring people? I think it's more to get insight. It's not to stage people, it's not to measure them, but it is what does this tell me about myself and what is next for me so that I can support myself and so that we can support other people. With that, we come to the main topic, but before we go there, I wanna just check in, Suzanne, is there anything else you'd just like to add in terms of the background, just some of the basics? What comes to mind is, and just repeating what you said, that how we hold any of these theories, doesn't matter which one and how scientific or not it is, makes a huge difference in terms of 
knowing that this is just a small piece of understanding a human being and not everything about them. And the temptation, of course, is to have, if a theory is strong and good, is to use it as a fits-all kind of approach. And definitely that's not how we see this. You will see it in the next section when Pina talks about different ways of responding to the virus and not just by stage because we can all move up and down and under pressure we tend to fall back further or discover. I think more importantly, we discover parts of ourselves that we thought we had, we had gone beyond rage, for instance. I didn't think I could still access rage, but yes, now I can. I can be really, really taken by that feeling and I'm aware of it. But that's interesting too. What have you not, uh, what have you thought you had gone beyond in your development that now because of the real threat comes back to the fore? Mm. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Suzanne. So what I've tried to do in this section, as I mentioned earlier, is um, share some of my, um, my thoughts about what I've been reading and hearing with examples from uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and articles and blogs. I just realized over the last three months as I've been reading about the virus and I would, I would read certain reactions and I would wonder what kind of a worldview do they have for them to have said something like that. And so I began curating that and began to look at it from the lens and then that actually helped me uh, appreciate better um, just my own reactions as well. I will start with some caveats. This is an illustrative presentation. I mean, it's by no means comprehensive. I haven't uh, tracked everything, especially the politicization of this pandemic is something I've sort of stayed away, away from because I feel it's very complex. It, it involves institution, institutional attitudes, history, politics um, is just way too complex, uh, I think, for us to do something simple like what we're trying to do here. As I share with you some quotes, I want to emphasize that I'm not trying to stage the person that is saying it. All I'm trying to do is look at what somebody has said, look at the text, and then see if we can appreciate how are they defining their world? What are they identifying with? and what is not yet available to them so that we can better appreciate where they are and then we are in a better position to support their movement rather than judge them um, or feel contemptuous. Um, to also appreciate that whatever it is that they are holding onto is valuable, it's wisdom and if we didn't value that, then we would probably um, be at a disadvantage. And so this is a fundamentally integral move to include everything, whatever they're holding on to is a partial truth that I need to, um, I need to respect. 
Each stage response can be a fallback due to the environmental stress. So some examples that I'm giving could be that that person has later stage capacity, but they are experiencing fallback and are expressing what that is like. And that's also informative. And people differ in how far they can fall back. If my, um, especially in privileged communities, you know, we have everything we need. I'm in a beautiful home. I have all the groceries I need. I have friends that support me. All I have to deal with is this pandemic. So my fallback might be not that far back. And some, somebody who's negotiating the pandem pandemic has lost their job, is alone or um, are separated from their family and um, don't have a future that they can look forward to after this, they can, um, you know, they can fall, fall even further, further back. And again, rather than judging them, I think we need to, we need to um, empathize with that and get in touch with ourselves, you know, and as Suzanne said, you know, when the feelings that we feel being able to own them in some ways, when somebody is saying something really positive and looking at the opportunity of this pandemic, uh, I think we need to keep in mind that that could be a way of coping as well. It could be a way of avoiding the pain and the loss, um, not engaging with what's difficult. So just because somebody is being positive and seeing the opportunity doesn't mean that um, they are actually embracing the opportunity. People can also idealize the situation as a defense, which is somewhat similar to the previous point, but it's not just about positive thinking. It's more about idealizing, idealizing when this happens, then that will be great. At the end of this, we'll all be in a better place, you know, making those kinds of generalizations. And we mustn't forget that people do behave in different ways depending on their personality type. So not every behavior is stage related, not every thing that is articulated um, by someone can be determined without doubt to be a stage-related expression. And having said this, yet we assert that our responses to life conditions reveal our worldview. It reveals how defined we are by how we see the world. And so uh, seeing that again is um, illuminating. Okay, we're gonna start now with the first stage. We're using the stage names that Suzanne and I have come up with, uh, not the original Lovinger's names or the more popular names like opportunist, diplomat and expert. Uh, those names were changed uh, three or four years ago uh, so that the names don't lend themselves to being uh, easy labels. Again, the idea is not to stage people, the idea is to understand that stage. At this stage, the um, driving motivation is surviving and protecting. It's to be safe. Um, the focus is on myself, what I need, and everything around me is an instrument to serve my needs. Um, we all know, um, we probably all had experiences where we might have later stage um, consciousness and we deny this this stage. We deny ourselves, um, care for ourselves, or even protecting ourselves. And so there's, um, this is the foundation of even existing as a human being. If we didn't own 
this stage, then we would die in some ways. So this, so the wisdom of this needs, especially at a time like this. And um, at this stage, there are limitations because there is no real um, um, inclusion of the other. There's no consideration of the impact of the other. There's no looking at uh, longer term impact. It's all immediate and what, is, what I need. Here are some examples. Uh, here are some ways in which this shows up in the current pandemic. So feeling in invincible, nothing can happen to me. I'm just, I'm gonna go to this grocery store. I need food um, and I'm gonna be just fine. So in some ways not willing to follow what everybody is following so that all of us can be safe. Um, Everybody has been talking about this, uh, going to grocery stores and experiencing people um, buying up more food than they need without concern for others that are waiting to shop. Um, there's a whole community um, out there that has uh, actually been um, constructing bunkers just for a time like this. And I don't know if you've heard, but many Silicon Valley uh, wealthy people have gone to New Zealand to occupy the bunkers that were that were built at you know great cost. Buying weapons, um, people are buying weapons out of fear that there will be scarcity or that there will be trouble and they will have to protect themselves. Not wearing, um, in some ways, I covered that not wearing uh, personal protective equipment and poo-pooing advice or rules. Basically, um, this stage doesn't believe that they, they don't like the constraint of rules. They don't want to be restrained. They want to be able to free to do what they want should the need arise to, 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 to survive. Blaming foreign sources for its spread. Uh, Again, when something goes wrong, you just blame. It's not me. Somebody else did it. And then you have somebody to, uh, to attack in some ways, somebody to, um, to complain about. And those that succumb or those that um, fall sick, for example, they treat it with contempt and it's seen that it's their fault. You know, I... When I read some of the comments, I just couldn't believe that somebody would actually feel that somebody who who's fallen sick is because is is actually responsible for that. And yet, I did come across many such comments. Um, and then fleeing um, before Wuhan was locked down, five million people left Wuhan, and most and and they just left without, you know without any concern for what would be the impact on other people. And the same thing happened in Italy. So here are some quotes. And I'll, I'll, I'll read these so our, uh, our audio audience can, can hear them. Um, here's a Twitter feed that says, uh, stop getting sick, you cowards, hashtag fuck Corona. Here's another one. I'm so fucking pissed. Work now mandates that we all wear surgical mask. I can't even explain how much I hate these things. I'm so upset. So the most important thing is what I like and I, what, what I don't like. I hate it. And, and now we are all supposed to wear it. And that's stupid. 
Oh, I'm not scared. It's called fate, beyond my control. I can only wash hands, but government should stop importing more cases. That's from Facebook. So blaming, blaming outside sources and also this, I can't control this and I'm not scared. If you are sitting on the couch wondering what to do like me, maybe you want to check out some of these bathroom picks. It's helping me to check out the full renovation. Head to the link in my bio. So you can see uh, some, um, a, a little bit more, more advanced sort of uh, uh, capacity at this stage because they're enterprising and they have a, you know, they're giving you some direction to go and build a business. But fundamentally, at this time, all they can think of is advancing their consulting business in renovating bathrooms. So that's the point uh, of this quote. A 60-year-old Chinese-American man was attacked by two women while jogging in Naperville, Illinois. According to his daughter, they allegedly threw a log at him, accused him of having the virus, spat at him, and told him to, quote, go back to China. That's from the Chicago Sun-Times on April 1st, 2020. It's shocking if you go to Wiki, Wikipedia and look for um, race-related uh, crimes, or, um, coronavirus-related racism, I should say. It's just mind-boggling. In every country, in every state in the U.S., you'll find examples of this kind of fear and violence uh, because the concern is, uh, how, how else am I going to be safe? I have to kill everybody out there and I have to make sure that they go away so that we can be safe. With, uh, Suzanne, anything about this stage before, we, before I go to the, pre, the next stage? No, I think we are complete. It is uh, amazing. It's not just foreign villains. Anybody who is saying something else than I believe or that could threaten me, the Democrats or whatever, I will vilify and blame for what's happening. That's just the nature of this, this stage that it's so in need of protection. Uh, that, that it does that throughout, in every which way. And I also think we are somehow um, not aware so much, at least I was shocked when I started looking and I started researching, I was shocked as to how much of, how much of this was out there. And I think in our circles, in integral circles, leave alone integral circles, even in conventional professional circles, there is no real um, understanding that so much of this is happening. And it, some ways it validates the research. I could add that I've been uh, following the Southern Poverty Law news, newsletters and magazines for years. And there you get a different view of what, uh, what reactions are actually possible and how this has been happening for years and years. It's just increasing. Fringe groups and violent groups have more power now than they ever had before. And, and real briefly, Bina, um, you know, I, I think it's important just to, to underscore for people that not all self-centric responses are necessarily unhealthy. I mean, we're pointing to some of the, the extreme cases here, um, but, you know, having the idea of, of going out and buying a gun and, and, you know, getting more ammunition just in case that's not inherently an unhealthy 
response to this, um, it can be, it can slide into unhealthy behavior pretty quickly, but sort of not necessarily by itself. And I think it's an important point to make because there just aren't a lot of very positive um, expressions uh, from this stage in media and in culture and all that, you know, what Ken calls the red altitude is often sort of the bad guy in all the movies. No, absolutely. And that's what I started with saying that this is a necessary, this is necessary yeah. for us and for our survival and there's nothing wrong with it. What we're trying to point out is this impulse to do this is coming from the stage. Right. It's coming from that part of us that is at, uh, identified by that stage or is, um, is, um, is in some ways accessing that stage for what it can offer. Right. Okay, we'll go to the next um, stage, which is the group-centric stage, blue and spiral dynamics. Uh, the driving motivation here is belonging and conforming. So you've come from the previous stage. When you arrive here, you, for the first time, are um, realizing that, you know, you can't just go in and grab whatever you want. Uh, if you really want to um, be part of society, then you need to follow the rules. You need to do the right thing. You need to follow the traffic signals, uh, you know, the traffic lights. You need to pay your taxes and you need to do what is expected of you. You get socialized. And this is a big leap from the previous stage. It's a big achievement. And this stage is the foundational fabric of society or civilization to be socialized and for us to think about uh, our, our tribe, not just me, but go beyond me and really be identified with the collective. At this stage, we say there is still not a separate self because my identity comes from my group, whoever I belong to. And, um, if you criticize my group, you criticize me. That's, that's how I, I know that this is the stage that is uh, operating. At this stage, um, this thinking is fairly simplistic. Um, there's a lot of stereotyping and generalization. And the big defining piece of the stage is that there is us and them mentality. There's a big boundary between me and my kith and kin and my tribe however I define that, and then the others who are actually the enemy. And we are right and they are wrong. So everything that comes as a result of that hard, impermeable boundary, um, you can see in some of these responses. So we hear that, you know, we heard this in the very beginning, that the Chinese are responsible. This is, this is a strong belief. And the way to respond to this is follow the rules, do as you're told. You know, if you've asked to stay home, stay, stay at home, stay the freaking, stay at your house. And um, if people don't follow the rules, then I want to tell them, I want to give them advice. I want to teach them. I want to show them how to do that. I look for um, advice from a trusted source and I use solutions that are handed down, tra traditional solutions. Oh, when my, you know, this is just like the cold. So you, you generalize and then say, my mother used to do steaming or my grandmother used to steam. Uh, and this is what we need to do so that we are going to stay protected. That kind of simple traditional thinking. 
care for own tribe and sacrifice self for all within the group. So you have concern, but it only extends to your group. You will try and help everybody. You'll try and help your neighbor, but you won't go outside your neighborhood, for example, because they are, they are not your neighbor. Pray. Praying is a solution. Uh, trust in God and we will be saved. Um, there is security in that. There's security in numbers. There's security in our faith. And um, this is actually from a little video that I got in my WhatsApp group. Um, some senior um, respectable, respected person in a community actually said this and basically said, follow the rules, do, us, do what you have to do. And if you get it, it's God's will. And if God doesn't want you to get infected, then you won't. This is... Um, this idea is promoted. Oh boy, some quotes. <clears throat> Twitter comment. I truly believe the Dems worked with the Chinese to release this virus and in so doing intentionally hurt the economy, which America had at record highs, not to mention risking the health of the world. Hashtag evil. So good and evil is a big topic. And anything evil is outside and, you know, our community, we are, you know, we are the, we are more, most important and we are good. And see this, the assertion and the certainty, I truly believe that this is what they did. And so there is no questioning that. Very likely they heard it from someone else or very likely that is the common belief subscribed by the group that they are part of. Christian pastor Rick Wiles, who said that the coronavirus outbreak is spreading via synagogues and is a punishment from God because Jews don't follow Jesus. I have the reference where this came from. Uh, on price gouging, quote, during all catastrophes, price gouging happens with all essential items. It is human nature to be greedy and selfish. And that's a comment from Facebook. And um, look at the simplicity in this thinking, that this is what human nature is, it's natural, this is what happens all the time. This is not a grand acceptance of what is. This is actually, it's actually a judgment and a belief about human nature, which is a very narrow belief. And here are some quotes from the same person, which you will recognize. Uh, and I just like you to, or maybe you could read this, Corey, and see what is underlying behind all of these five statements spoken between January 22nd and March 8th. What is it that is the uh, stance? We'll see if we can make it a game. See if you can recognize who said all these. Uh, on January 22nd, quote, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. It's going to be just fine. And then on February 25th, I think that's a problem that's going to go away. They have studied it. They know very much. In fact, we're very close to a vaccine. Then two days later on February 27th, one day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. On March 2nd, a lot of things are happening. A lot of very exciting things are happening and they're happening very rapidly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a hard time getting through this. March 8th, quote, we have a perfectly coordinated and fine-tuned plan at the White House for our attack on coronavirus. 
Again, I'm not staging the person who's saying it. Um, and again, remember the tri-stage, so there are at least three stages that uh, would be represented by the whole person, at least. But see the simplicity of this thinking, see the tendency to whitewash, to pretend everything is okay, to convince people that everything is okay. And also the vagueness. A lot of things are happening, a lot of very exciting things happening. So just ge broad generalizations without, without real clarity. That is the kind of thinking you see at this stage. And then I saw this one, which was, oh, sorry, there's one more. On March 10th, it will go away. Just stay calm, it will go away. In some ways, mirac this miraculous thinking. And then here is a response. Uh, uh, here is again a Twitter comment uh, that I read. And I felt when I read this that, oh, this is the kind of person that would feel supported by somebody in power who says everything that we just heard. Oh, you're on mute, Corey. Sorry about that. Uh, the quote says, can the virus disappear in 2020 become enjoyable? Pretty please. I want people hugging and snuggling each other again. Sad face, broken heart emoji. Just can the virus disappear? Just wish, wishing it away. And so there are a whole lot of people who want that. And when they hear a leader saying, yes, it's going to be, it'll disappear. And, you know, it's all under control. It'll go away. Then they feel, yes, that's what they want to hear. I found that very interesting. This is from the UK. Um, Boris refers to Boris uh, Johnson when he was in the ICU fighting COVID. And this is a complaint about the Home Secret Secretary. And the complaint says, this is from Facebook, whilst Boris fights for his life in an ICU, our Home Secretary, the head of policing, security, and national safety, appears to be missing from duty too. If you see this woman, please mention the word pandemic and point her in the direction of Downing Street. Yeah, see the, um, see the demand for somebody doing their duty, that they should be doing their duty. And then the prime minister is like a hero. He's fighting for his life. Just that stance, the complaint and, and the expectation that you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. You, there are rules, there are expectations, and there is um, this quite an, um, uh, what shall I say, intense, um, intense reaction to somebody not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Anything, Suzanne, before we get to the next stage? The hierarchical nature that those on the top have more value and get more sympathy than the ordinary folks. The others do just do have to do their duty. That is part of that level as well. A very good sense of who gives commands and who is a follower mm. without questioning. I mean, that's always the thing, no questioning yet. So there's a, um, I'm going to call this question out, but I would like to get the response, uh, like, like us to talk about the response at the end of the, at the end of this uh, stages. And this is from Anand Rao. Isn't there a danger when you say simplicity, vagueness, narrow without clarity, isn't there an implied judgment that sort of implies that people shouldn't be thinking this way? And it would be better if they came from a higher stage of development. So that's not what we're saying, but I would like to come back to this question at the end. 
I, I want to register that we I did see the question. Thank you, Anand. Bina, real briefly, do you think that some of the, um, one of the things that's being generated right now because of so much of the anxiety and the uncertainty and so forth is um, all of these conspiracy theories that are rising to the surface. Some of them are, you know, more plausible than others, but the thread that seems to connect all of them is this sort of, again, this search for, for a sense of direct causation rather than systemic causation. It's this search for like a singular point of blame, whether that's you know, the CIA or that's uh, 5G. That's sort of one of the big mm -hmm. ones. We want yeah. to blame technology. It's, you know what I mean? We're, we're trying to find this, again, this single sort of locus of blame, uh, which in turn makes us feel that much less uncertain about all of this because we can reclaim that kind of sense of like, well, no, I know what's going on. It's just all those sheeple out there that haven't opened their eyes yet. That's partly what's going on. Partly it is the... Um, it is this, again, it's, I would say, simplistic thinking and it's monolithic thinking. It's not that here's the conspiracy theory I read. There might be a grain of truth. And let me mm -hmm. go look. Let me see what out of this is true, what is not true. And then who is saying this? And does that person have an agenda? And, you know, so exploring the ver veracity of that is actually not online here. It is because you found something and then you just monolithically take that on board and then you spout that mm. there's there's danger in that in that kind of thinking mm. and again um so maybe this does sort of respond to anand's question and maybe we can take it now since we're talking about it is that we're not saying that that we're we're saying that that is the um cognitive um capacity at that stage that doesn't reduce the person to be less or more than uh, a person from another stage. And when we are saying that if you can see greater complexity and you are able to see not just uh, the facts and the information, but you're able to see the patterns and then you're able to see your own interpretation of the patterns, that is a more adequate map of what's going on rather than just identifying a singular causal uh, point that hasn't even been validated. Yes, we are saying that for sure. Suzanne, anything you want to add to that? I was actually thinking of the question and the uh, chat twist from Armand. Uh, so I'm not, I didn't. That's, what, that's what we're talking about. So we just began to, since, since Corey also asked a question, so I did respond. So we are responding to Anand's question. To me, it's just that we can't so simplistically assume that higher is always better. I was thinking of concentration camps and the unique capacity of somebody like Frankel to survive, at least emotionally and spiritually, and the thousands of people who were equally probably later in development than the perpetrators, but who died because they, there was nothing else to do. I don't think... Uh, in extreme cases, especially higher, is always better. And mm -hmm. we also actually say in our framework, we say later and earlier, because higher and lower are such culturally loaded evaluation terms. Mm. I think also what Anand was asking is that simplistic, narrow thinking, the, does that mean that we're saying that they should be 
they should actually be at a higher stage? That was the question. Maybe a, a way to reframe that too is, is it's, a, it's about functional fit, right? I mean, there's a role that you're playing in the world and that mm-hmm. role brings with it a certain level of complexity. And we're hoping that the people who are in those roles are themselves capable of seeing that complexity. Um, and I think oftentimes some of the pain that we feel is when people from earlier stages are sort of being put into positions that would be better managed with people who are coming at a later stage. And then that can create some icky judgments coming out of that. I think what we're saying is that as we mature, we question our, our, the way we, we judge what has happened. So just as an example, I could say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a success or I'm a loser because my father was a loser. Just, just that. Now that is simplistic thinking. And that is not, and as I grow and develop, then I might come into this understanding that I contributed to that. It was not entirely my father. So now I'm able to look at more at, at a bigger picture. And that's what we're saying is, is, uh, is having a perspective or having a greater perspective. Okay. Moving to the skill centric stage at this stage, the, focus is on knowing and perfecting. Um, so we were come from the earlier uh, group centric stage and we are now not defined so much by the group that we are part of. This is also called the birth of the psychological self in our framework. Now my identity comes not from the group, but from what I do, from what I know. I'm, I'm separate. I, can, I would still conform to authority in my area of interest or in my role or in my area of expertise. Um, At this stage, if you criticize what I do, if you criticize what I know, then you criticize me. So this is is where the identity comes from what I do. Here are some examples. I don't know why this is. I think I have to go back this way, sorry. Here are some examples. Oh, well, first let me describe a little bit. So how, how do people at this stage respond? Um, they are interested in knowing more and getting more information. And so they listen and repeat what experts say, experts that they trust. They gather information, they look at volumes of data and share that information widely. I'm sure as you've all been reading, you're just seeing um, a lot of different websites, a lot of different posts that are basically repeating how many people have died, how many people have gotten infected, in which country has this doubled, what was the percentage of growth, how many people have recovered, how does that compare to the flu? All of, so the attention is there. The attention is trying to know so that you can understand what is going on. And this is one little um, snapshot of somebody that posted this is the confirmed status. So in some ways, people become repeaters of information that they see, and they want to disseminate that information. And their sense of self comes from doing that, from uh, the accuracy of the information and where that is, you know, just the research even behind it. At this stage, they also are looking for technical solutions, wanting to solve the problem and looking for the perfect solution. 
knowing everything about it, how to prevent the infection, um, how, to, how to do the physical distancing, how to make sanitizers, how to make masks, and going into great detail. This kind of mask is better than this kind of mask. Yesterday, my husband was telling me his friend did all this research and um, sent him this message that you can use um, the bags that you get in vacuum cleaners you can use those as good filtration material for uh, reusing masks and that that is better filtration. And he spent days doing this research and then sharing that with, with, his, uh, with his friends. Again, not staging the person, but saying this is where the attention is and this is what they're identified by. They're also interested in quality and uh, in, in standards. So you can read this one out. Uh, sure. So James Melville says, South Korea are the gold standard in how to flatten the curve of the coronavirus. This is because of a successful mass testing program. Test, trace, track, isolate. So this kind of uh, view tracks best practices and uh, looks at all the data and then picks who is who's doing the best, who's, you know, who's the gold standard, and then sharing that information. This came to me in my, again, in, in a message feed. Um, so this was a manual by um, distributed in a Toyota manufacturing concern in another country. And I was very curious about what are they how are they going to, uh, what are they, what are they, uh, what kind of culture are they creating? What steps are they taking to restart operations? How would this epi uh, pandemic have impacted the way they are thinking about work? So I was imagining something and I just, so this is a 42 page manual and it had, it was very well structured. This is the overview. They, they looked at very, you know, different elements and went into great detail. This is the procedure. This is not a hospital. This is a manufacturing concern. And you can see the flow charts and how do you contact trace and uh, even details as to when you're traveling, but you know, the executive car travel rules, you have to check the temperature of the driver and you, no pooling and you sit diagonally, you don't sit next to each other. And into further detail of how do you classify the cases who are infected, you know, who is under investigation and I was quite shocked and surprised that that was it. I somehow imagined that there would be more, but what is remarkable is what was missing in this. There was no mention of how to address the anxiety that people were feeling, how to increase the connection. They were only saying maintain the distancing, but how to collaborate despite, despite distancing, how to harmonize the technical and the human. There's no direction, no mention, almost as if it doesn't exist. And that's what we mean by, by the radar, you know, at later stages, you pick up more signals and you include more. And at earlier stages, it's, uh, it's more simplistic, um, unidimensional thinking. And these are human beings who have created it, human beings who feel anxiety, human beings who miss connection. And yet it hasn't yet shown up in the way they offer solutions in their workplace, which also demonstrate this, demonstrates this um, compartmentalization between who I am as a human being and what I do at my work. Again, those boundaries that are impermeable. 
You know, Bina, I'm, I've, I've, I've been part of the, uh, the maker community for, for a little while now. And um, mm -hmm. this particular stage, I think, is huge for the maker community. Mm -hmm. You know, as a community, mm -hmm. they tend to be very um, entrepreneurial, very sort of self-focused. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's very it, the huge emphasis on vocational. This is my contribution. Yes. And in response to this, to this pandemic, you see, you see exactly this. You see, how can I use my machines, my CNC machines, or my 3D printers, or whatever, in order to be service of this, of this which is a, a really great sentiment. But what oftentimes it comes down to is so that I can feel a little bit less helpless than I, than I currently do. And some amazing projects have come out of that. Beautiful. It's been a really yes. wonderful thing. Beautiful. And what a contribution. And if they mm -hmm. didn't feel so strongly, we would have, we may have slipshod, slipshod stuff. So, yeah. so it's something to be really appreciated. Yeah. Celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, there's been um, um, like a plethora of all of these um, uh, techniques and procedures and um, creative things you can do at home and how you can do them well and people teaching each other, which is beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. We now go to the last stage in the conventional realm. It's the highest stage uh, called the self-determining stage. Also, uh, most of the self-authoring stage in Keegan's framework would come here, also called the achiever. A much bigger leap here. Here, it's not just about information, but it is a little bit more systemic, looking at trends, looking at patterns. And now my identity comes from not what I do, but who I am, the choices I make and what I want and what I think is possible. So I see opportunities. Um, my embrace is broader. I want to help those that don't have help. I want to optimize resources. I want to mobilize resources. And I am agentic and I have uh, the capacity to do many things and I'm interested in doing them all. And I'm, and I'm willing to take responsibility and wanting to take responsibility and there's a greater objectivity. All of those are big steps. And this stage is often underestimated. As I think people at the post-conventional stages tend to see this as a limited, um, you know, been there, done that, or, you know, um, can be contemptuous or um, disregard, disregarding people who come from this worldview. And, and, this is such an important and big contribution. So here they are concerned about discerning hype from real information. So now they're not going to just reproduce what they are hearing. They would want to bust myths and look for objective truth. So they'll, they'll, they would say, oh, I read about this 5G, you know, that 5G is causing virus and that's not true. I read that it, children can't get it and that's not true that antibiotics, you know, will not cure it, uh, will cure the coronavirus. And that's not true. So just, I mean, there are, there's one, one particular blog that I saw that had 25 myths that were, that were, were busted. And, and that's what this, this, um, this perspective is looking for rational scientific truth. And there's also an interest in looking a little bit inward. They rely on objective measures and deal with fears that are unfounded by finding reasons not to fear. So even if they feel fear, they would identify the thought and say, well, that's, you know, that's not something that's reasonable and that's not true. So 
I don't, ha- I, I shouldn't fear it. Like I might feel, oh, I'm going to die. And then I would ask myself, really, is that, I would reason. No, I would then go and look for facts. And then I will realize, okay, um, I don't need to be fearful because not everybody that's got coronavirus has died. So using a rational view. I'm going to read that. Yeah, so the World YMCA said on Twitter, our second resilient YMCA's leaders talked. I'm sorry, let me start that again. Our second resilient YMCA's leaders talked is Thursday, 16th April, and we will feature experts in crisis communications, the global risk outlook, and critical thinking amongst chaos. Hashtag we shall overcome. Hashtag YMCA stands together. We shall overcome could be the motto of this stage. You know, we can do this. We can all get together and see the complexity. Now they are interested in teaching. They're not just sharing information about the communication, about the global risk outlook. And there's a little bit of an interior orientation about critical thinking. Can we be, can we be looking at uh, what is what we are reading and not subscribing to everything that we're reading? So developing our creative, creative thinking skills. And the solutions now are on a larger scale. It's not just individuals trying to perfect a little process and then um, sending it out to people they know. Now we're really looking at how do we equip a whole city and how do we source uh, and support countries and how can we manufacture one million masks a day. So mobilizing and optimizing resources. And there are lots of stories of how alcohol companies are now making sanitizers and repurposing existing facilities. Um, Tesla is making ventilators and Apple is making face covering shields. That's the kind of, that's the kind of impetus is what can we do to um, make sure that everybody is uh, helped and that we can use the resources we have to, um, to solve the issues that we are facing collectively. And so the attitude is that we can join our efforts together and we can face the pandemic as a winning team. You do your part and I do mine and we will win as a team. This is not actually online at the previous stage. We're not looking at all of us as a winning team. We're all individually, independently doing the things and trying to perfect what we are focused on. You can read this. Quote, When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. Whether a crisis is viewed as a crisis, whoops. Whoops, sorry. I don't know what happened there. I accidentally clicked something. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna start again. When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. Whether a crisis is viewed as a crisis or an opportunity depends on whether the focus is on what is lost or what can be gained. The question becomes whether we can keep the challenges in perspective and focus on the potential benefits. So higher level thinking, more complex, uh, keeping, um, keeping the challenges in perspective and then focusing on the benefits. So at this stage, the virus, the pandemic is, seen as an, is also seen as an opportunity this here's an opportunity for us to master this and to learn how to handle something like this. And the driving question is, how can I be of service? How can I make a difference? Not just I, but how can we make a difference? 
And we can also see that the embrace is larger. You're looking at a larger community. You can see systemic thinking. Um, there is a lot of focus on predicting, looking at trends, looking at patterns. So for example, focusing on global oil markets and how they are transforming and how this can shape the politics of oil and looking at the impact on climate change, you can, you can see how the whole scope has expanded at this stage and for decades to come. So at this stage now, there's a little bit further thinking, thinking out, further out in time. I don't know what's going on here. Sorry, I'm hitting the wrong button. Okay. Make sure my cursor is not there. I wanted to say one more thing at the personal level at this stage, uh, which I think I need to add, which is when you, because you're, you want to um, really focus on solving and optimizing and you want to focus on yourself. So you want to do everything. You want to uh, take care of your family and you want to keep your fitness uh, routine and you want to eat healthy and you want to um, manufacture things to support the world and you want to create networks so that we can support. So it's multidimensional at this stage. And this can also be ripe for a burnout, especially at the time of at the pandemic, because nothing you do is going to feel enough. And you don't see the limit of your responsibility and you feel you have to do it all. With this, we move now to the post-conventional stages. Um, Suzanne, do you, wanna, uh, do you wanna do this one a little bit? So I was still thinking of the previous one. One thing that is much newer in stage four than before is the sense of balance between I have rights, but I also have responsibilities. Before there is sort of an amoral kind of only looking at the rights and what is mine to have and do. Whereas here is the first time at the self-governing stage where you look at the balance and you feel deep responsibility. You do want to make the world a better place with others together. That is really a strong and new and beautiful aspect of this stage. Now, when we move to the next stage, what is new is I'm now aware of how I have been socialized and how certain ideas and beliefs I fully uh, embrace are actually programmed into me because of the particular place, time in, uh, in life and epoch that I'm living in. And that starts the self, the questioning, broadly questioning. I can't move these forward, Bina. No, I can, I can move it. The, for, the next are a couple of examples. I can move it. But anyway, it is also uh, the first time that, that I'm really realizing that is also true for other people. They too have been socialized. They too have absorbed ideas from their environment. And they're unique in that sense. And I can respect that. I can really be tolerant and even compassionate with other people's lives and stories about why they are the way they are. Whereas before that was less the case. 
uh, I'm really, really aware of all the inequities and injustices that are existing if I look, you know, with open eyes. And I may actually have a, a kind of a dislike of this whole Western uh, ca capitalist uh, system that is drive, 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 get things done, go to the moons, go to other planets, uh, a kind of external focus without actually being aware of true long-term consequences or of really asking about myself. So how do I? feel about all of these things? Where, what resources do I have? I might reject this uh, earlier stage, particularly the achiever stage, uh, or I might not. I might come to learn that actually in order to function as a human being in a modern society, you need to have some access to the benefits of the rational mind and of looking at things and of, of, of you know, trying to achieve something. Extreme, I think also, go ahead. I was just gonna say the extreme relativism that can be part of this is of course, can also be an unhealthy expression of this level. And the kind of arrogance that when, if only everybody was like us, the green <laughs> or the, you know, the self-questioning, then the world would be in a good shape, post-formal. If everyone was post-conventional, then we would have a much better world. That kind of incapacity to yet see how you or I have come through the levels and how parts of that are still parts of us as well of the earlier stages that's not easily accessible to this level and i would say in the context of the pandemic i'm actually not interested in solutions i'm not interested in mobilizing resources i'm i'm really curious about how what are people experiencing what is their suffering what is my story what is their story yes and uh, i'm um i i'm I'm interested in my reactions and interested in my own conditioning about this. And I see this also, I have the possibility now of seeing the virus as a gift, not just as an opportunity. It's allowing me to be present and I'm open to that. And I want to be present to other people's experiences. Yes. I don't want to give them masks. I want to know how they're feeling. And, and I might even criticize these companies like Tesla and Apple. They're trying to manufacture all these things. Why aren't they concerned about mental illness? Why aren't they concerned about all you know, the people that are suffering um, who, need, who need emotional support because their focus is more internal? Uh, Barack Obama says, speak the truth. Speak it clearly, speak it with compassion, speak it with empathy for what folks are going through. The less embarrassed you are to ask questions, the better your response is going to be. And just this introduction of speak it with empathy for what folks are going through, that underscores this, uh, this investment in looking inward and looking below the surface. And this was a quote from actually Facebook where somebody said, 
the biggest loss in the end is if we come out on the other side of this unchanged. So now they have a bigger picture. They're looking at this whole experience and thinking about the impact of that experience on us as human beings. And they're aware of this process of growth and development. And at this stage, there's an interest in learning and growing for the sake of growing, not for the sake of achieving any results or not for the sake of achieving any outcomes. So you can see that big shift from um, stage four to stage four or five in this sentence. And at this stage, also more concerned about bringing one's own presence and then using mindfulness, using other practices so that we can be more present to now and recognizing that the here and the now is important and precious. So here's a, here's a piece that Corey will read. And read it slowly. And as you listen, just be thinking about what is the call from this voice? What, what, what is the invitation? Quote, with this open time, you do not have to write the next best-selling novel. You do not have to get in the best shape of your life. You do not have to start that podcast. What you can do instead is observe this pause as an opportunity. The same systems we see crumbling in society are being called to crumble in each of us individually. What if we became curious with this free time and had no agenda other than to experience being? What if you allowed yourself to rest and cry and laugh and play and get curious about whatever arises in you? What if our true purpose is in this space? And that was by Emma Zeck. Quite a far cry from the previous stage where the focus of the previous stage would be, oh, let me get into shape now. I had this opportunity. Let me start that podcast. Let me write my book. A lot of people wanting to write books at this stage. So from there, we get into another milestone into the self-actualizing stage where the driving motivation is integrating. Uh, so Suzanne talked about the relativistic uh, approach of the previous stage. Um, so at the previous stage, I, am, um, I recognize that I have a perspective and that is true. I recognize you have a perspective and that's true. So we're both right. And so who am I to say that I am more right than you. The, all, all views are held equal. At this next stage, yes, everything is relative, is understood and accepted. And now you come into this, um, you, you get into the, you see the limitations of relativizing everything. And then you come to understand that there are some higher principles. There are some absolutes and I can stand by them and I can say that some truths are higher than other truths. That clarity and that um, stepping into a more, um, a more assertive uh, and, and a greater clarity is the hallmark of this self-actualizing stage. And along with that is an equal, um, equal uh, emphasis or more on the interiority. So I do, I'm interested in everybody's stories. I'm interested in perspectives, but now I want to go deeper. I'm, I'm wanting to know things that I don't know. I don't know. I'm interested in my blind spots. I'm interested in our collective shadow, not just individual shadow. 
and if I discover something about me that um, I didn't know and that seems to be um, dark or negative or difficult, I'm actually happy that I discover it because it's something that reveals to me um, aspects of myself. It's a discovery. And so I'm looking at, at this stage, um, systemic transformation. The scale is much higher. I'm thinking system, systemically. I'm thinking about um, at a much higher level of society. So I see this lockdown as being a catalyst for growth, not just for me, which would be at the previous stage, but also for society. And I'm more aware of uh, global patterns and trends. Some of that is online at stage four, but now my attention is on how we are collaborating at the global level to produce novel solutions that can impact all of humanity and that can lead to a new emerging culture um, as a result of what we've all gone through and recognizing that some things are never going to be the same again and beginning to anticipate what is unforeseen. Here's a Facebook quote. A big question about the coronavirus pandemic is how much change it will leave in its wake. Are we in the midst of a massive, potentially revolutionary transformation of society? Can a pandemic remake society? And you can see how each successive quote and comment is a leap in some ways from the previous stage and how they express what shows up in their language and how they make meaning and understand what's going on. This was a Twitter post which uh, really struck me. Someone says, the last time they quarantined me for eight days, I went in a boy and emerged a man. Hashtag Kenya will surely emerge more mature when this is over. So this was from somebody in Kenya. And that is such a beautiful, beautifully stated, simple sentence, going in a boy and emerging a man. It, it calls upon the entire growth process and it gives us an idea of so many things that this person sees and encapsulates just in that phrase. That is a stage five capacity. And there are a few other things that come online here. Um, there's more acceptance and openness to the fact that we are mortal. And um, there's greater tolerance of ambiguity, more inner resources to accept ambiguity as well as our own vulnerabilities. I already talked about the blind spots. And there's also an appreciation that, you know, this is, um, this is the cycle coming back and us reaping the consequences of what we sowed and that we've abused the earth and we are, un we are suffering the unforeseen consequences and, and able to see how our thinking before was limited and how this is a result of that. And then that gives me foresight, that builds foresight so that I can begin to think about what, I, what do I need to do now so that we don't get into these kinds of um, unforeseen impacts um, as we go further. You can read this, Corey. 
Sure. So Jeff Vander Kloot says the gifts of the virus are slowing down humanity's frenetic activities, activating networks of cooperation, spreading helpful DNA, upgrading humanity's immune system, creating the conditions for peace and well being, saving lives, especially over the long term, by strengthening the web of life. So you can hear in you can hear in in this the uh, the level of the level of complexity and the depth is much greater than the pre previous stages. Looking at our collective immune system and and um, creating the conditions for peace and well-being for all all of humanity, and really looking over long term, looking over more than our generation, mm -hmm. looking past more than our generation. And uh, here's a, a quote that was, uh, here's something that someone sent to me, uh, a friend of mine sent it to me by text and maybe Suzanne, you could read this for a change. COVID is a messenger from the future with unavoidable teachings come to wake us from our slumber. Our unease is profound. What shall we learn from it? Shall we learn of our own mortality finally? COVID teaches unity. We stand naked in our fears before the advent of COVID. Can we cleanse our perceptions and judgments? COVID shines a bright light on our interdependence. We are interbeing with each other continuously. Our actions affect each other, but so do our attitudes, thoughts, and our way of being. COVID is relentless. And COVID is on the move, resetting all the playing fields. There is little time to wake up and be present here as whole, complete human beings. The time is now. Wake up. Show up. It's the only day you ever have. Mm. Gorgeous. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. And um, this is the last one at this stage, uh, which I absolutely loved and it struck me. So I read this first line and um, I thought this is really beautiful. Every time an old person dies, a library burns. Mm. So this is somebody who is focusing on the elderly that who are at greater risk. And um, this was from a blog where they say that um, we'll probably lose more of our seniors in the next year. And so they, they call on all of us to say, think of the senior people you know, talk to them, interview them, inquire into both what society has gained, during, gained and lost during their lives. Ask them about their life choices, what was most meaningful to them. Ask them about their concerns and hopes for the future a very different quality than just listening to um, you know, each other's experiences or wanting to be present. Now there is, there is something around legacy. There's something around what can we retain and how do we, um, how do we um, yeah, get the benefit of uh, people who, whose life experiences can, uh, can add to our life experiences. We now move to the next stage, which is the construct aware stage, which is another milestone. And I hope as you've 
heard through the different stages and you've seen some examples, you can begin to see how each stage is a big leap. Each stage is, an, uh, is a triumph over the previous stage. And each new stage in some ways resolves the, the limitations and the problems of the previous stage. So we talked about um, at the stage four or five or the self-questioning stage, everything is relative. And then we said at stage five, there is an understanding, yes, everything is relative and some things are absolutes. Now at the construct of our stage, we, <clears throat> we realize, yes, there are these absolutes that I can stand by. And these are constructs. They're ideas, they are not actual reality. They are the way I represent reality. And because there's also greater capacity to look within, you've looked at your blind spots, you've looked at collective shadows and you recognize all of those are also constructs. And eventually the self is seen as a construct and you begin to see all of this is the meaning-making mind that is trying to capture reality and to make it something. So at this stage, the view is that the virus is totally neutral. It's not evil. It doesn't have a specific target. And it is us who are creating individual and collective stories about, all, about what it all means. So we are the storytellers. Now for the first time, you're, we could even say that uh, one aspect of the stage is the ego aware. You're now aware of the ego. You're aware of the mind itself. And um, how do individuals cope and respond? They will tend to find sublimated views to suit themselves beyond what is uh, just seen and defined uh, by accessing deeper levels of awareness, um, you know, even looking at generational trauma or cross-generational trauma, being able to shift your mind um, just using language and recognizing the limits of language to describe what is. At this stage, you realize that any idea that you have only represents reality and is not reality. And you see that you tend to take the idea for reality and you realize that's an illusion. And you also recognize that to to believe that illusion is true is a delusion. And you begin to see all those, um, all those filters and you're now really looking at what is true and what of even the self, if, even if the self is, cons is a construct, then who am I? Here's another um, example. Um, and this is speaking to a level of complexity that is new in comparison to what we've seen so far. So Richard Grossinger says, quote, the virus has an intrinsic intelligence. It is part of an interdependent transmission that includes our own minds and participates in a greater knowledge. We are colleagues, partners in a deep ontological dialogue, as well as the more recognized DNA and cellular dialogue. We are discussing important matters at a moment of transition at their level, not ours. It's beautiful. Almost you get the sense of this telescoping and landing at a whole different level and then seeing the whole picture from that perspective. Mm. And, and even saying that the virus is a part 
of this transmission that includes our minds. So it's not any separate, the virus and what our mind is doing in terms of describing the virus is all interdependent. And uh, this is a masterful turn now. Um, we get, this is also written by somebody called an imagined letter from COVID-19 to humans. And this is again, what one of the reasons why I think this is also called the magician stage. You just, you know, you can just reframe and turn completely inside out and turn around the whole situation. So here's, um, here's Corey reading this letter from the virus to the human being. An imagined letter from COVID-19 to humans. We are not well. None of us, all of us are suffering. Last year, the firestorms that scorched the lungs of the earth did not give you pause nor the typhoons in Africa, China, Japan, nor the fevered climates in Japan and India. You have not been listening. We will help you. We will bring the firestorms to your body. We will bring the fever to your body. We will bring the burning, searing, and flooding to your lungs that you might hear. We are not well. We are not the enemy. We are messenger. We are ally. We are a balancing force. We are asking you to stop, to be still, to listen, to look at a tree and see it, to notice its condition. How does its health contribute to the health of the sky, to the air you breathe, to visit a river and see it, to notice its condition, clear, clean, murky, polluted? How does its health contribute to the health of the tree who contributes to the health of the sky so that you may be healthy by Kristen Flintz. Thank you. Bringing the firestorms to your body, you know, collapsing things that are at such different scales and getting a visceral sense. Um, so this brings us then to the, to the, um, last stage, which is the unitive stage at stage six. And in some ways, um, that is a, even a bigger milestone because you can see how all the previous stages are all still in the personal realm. And now you have the entry into the transpersonal realm. So we've looked at the, we've looked at seven stages and they span pre-conventional, conventional, post-conventional post and post-autonomous, which was the what we just looked at, stage five, six. And yet they all share this, the self as the center. Even though I begin to see the self as the construct, I still am the actor. I'm still trying to map. I'm still trying to understand. And um, at the next stage, the I is no longer the actor. Now it is I as witness. Now I am watching and observing and I'm no longer the um, the, self, the self is no longer the reference point. Um, I know, Susanna, I want you to say some things about this, but I'm just going to see what I have next here. So, may, yeah, maybe you could. Um, so the, the key drivers are all embracing and witnessing. So there's no boundary consciousness. And no boundary doesn't mean that a person at this stage doesn't keep boundaries, but that they have the capacity for um, transcending all boundaries. Suzanne, you wanna? 
and tailoring what happens in life with the right time, the right moment to be this kind of person or this other kind of person? How can I serve the best? And how can I be even grateful for my ego, the storytelling? I couldn't really exist without it. I'm, I'm aware it's, it needs, you know, sometimes checking, sometimes it needs to be mollified, but I have respect for it because it's the only way as human beings we can actually survive by having cultures, we're having languages that help us learn and understand what's going on. It is really not, uh, at least the way I have come to see it from the writings I have analyzed, it is not to kill the ego, but to create a new relationship to it. That is part of this level. And, and, and probably way more compassion now than even at the strategist or the stage five, the self-actualizing stage, where being compassionate is part of what comes on board. Because I know I have grown those stages, usually by support from others, and also uh, the historical perspective uh, that I now have. This is not the first pandemic we have. We have a sense of what people do over time in these situations. And at the unitive stage, I, the, 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 the space and the timelines are even infinite in some ways. Regarding the theory, I do have to put in a caveat since this theory is data-based. I simply never had enough of the latest beyond this. Just, this is a bucket for all the possible differentiations and stages that may be possible beyond the ego stages we describe. I just want to make that clear. It's not that this stage explains everything, uh, but it does give you that shift that we experienced when we first landed a person on the moon and they looked back and they could see our little planet as a blue pearl in the sky. The first time any of us, we haven't been out there, we're all with gravity attached to the floor, wherever we are, or even on the antipode on the other side of the globe, people are attached. We can't get off that ground and that, predisposes us to have a particular human experience, an explanation of what, what's out there and why we're here and what's happening. I think these are important things to take into account as well and appreciate just what it's like to be a human being in the positions we are in, in the struggles we are in, and find compassion for all creatures, not even just human beings, for all of us on this globe, on this precious earth. And it's Earth Day today, so I'm making a plug for that as well. And so in the context of the pandemic, the stance at this stage is all we have is this now. And there is even that even time has no boundary. In some ways, there's a capacity to be in the eternal now. And to live in the reality of there is no past and no future. The past is, an, is a memory and the future is imagination. And mm -hmm. here we are. 
And we are all no different from anything else. Nothing is better or worse than anything else. Whether pandemic or no pandemic, this is, this is the human life that we are living. And the world will lose and gain and create and destroy. And it is in the nature of things. And it is in the way of what is and complete acceptance of what is. Not just acceptance, it's relishing. You know, here's where you can even see the bliss underlying suffering because it's in the fundamental nature of our existence to be blissful. Blissful is in the nature of things and we can suffer and we can be in bliss as well. Um, so there's one quote that I'd like Suzanne to read. You will lose everything. You will lose everything, your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go, loved ones will die, your body will fall apart. But right now we stand on sacred and holy ground for that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but really it is the key to everything, the why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. And this from Jeff Foster. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. Just imagine that sentiment. And in some ways, this, um, the impermanence and the ambiguity that we are all steeped in because of the pandemic can be a trigger for us to really pay attention to everything that is holy and significant, to pay attention to the fact that existence is itself sacred. In some ways, we can give, we can thank the pandemic for allowing us to begin to see that, which in normal circumstances when everything is going well and we have this feeling of invincibility and this feeling of we are, we are the masters, that's hard to question. And we now have this choice. Now we have this option. So this is our last, um, um, this is the last stage and the last example. And I'd like to close with an image a couple of images, actually. Can I read that one out loud? Yes, please. Questioner, how should we treat others? Ramana Maharshi responds, there are no others. We're all one. I love that. Uh -huh. And this is an image of the, the cosmic, uh, a representation of the cosmic um, shining light, everything that is 
and um, you can begin to see the human eye, the beautiful human eye, which is one with everything that is. And I'd like to close by um, underscoring integration that we, we talked about earlier. And the yin yang is the symbol of this integration. And this again is a, an abstract symbol and humanizing this involves us becoming integrated in our humanness, in our human bodies. And you can see this image, which is one of my favorite images of, um, it's, it's an image, it's a, it's a representation of consciousness and divinity where you can see the masculine and the feminine in one figure. You can see the right side of the body is, um, is masculine and the left side of the body is the, is the feminine. And so the invitation is for us to be integrated in our, in our human form and not in an abstract, in an abstract sense to bring together the, um, the human eye, the, the eye of the flesh with the eye of the cosmic consciousness and to bring together the um, yin yang into our human body. So with that, I would like to, um, Thank you, Corey, for having us present this and we can get into a dialogue. So I'm gonna stop sharing. Yeah. First off, let me just say, wow. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous presentation, Bina. Thank you. And it was, um, you know, I love how this is, is being presented in a very different voice than we often talk about these things. You know, often it's Ken talking about development and it's very third person. It feels a little bit distant. It feels a little bit, abstract at times. Um, and I really love how you took us in sort of uh, leading with a first person kind of experience of each of these stages. And I can say that for me, reading all of the quotes from stage to stage to stage was, a, was, was fairly profound, mm -hmm. being able to slide into these different perspectives and then realizing how much of these perspectives are still alive in me and are still active, um, hopefully in healthy ways. And it helped me also reflect on just how great, you know, the part of me that's still very much identified with my own vocation, which is doing shows like this and trying to create a space for our audience and all that. I was very heartened going through the presentation and then being able to, to, to find examples of every stage that we've done in one of our shows mm. the last few weeks. And hopefully our audience agrees in, you know, more healthy ways, um, than not, but it, it makes me grateful that there is sort of this, this integral intelligence that seems to be churning, you know, just behind the veil um, that is sort of intuitively leading us to, um, to discussing, so, you know, the, 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 the remarkable benefits mm -hmm. and some of the traps that exist at each of these stages. And especially these days, because, you know, you can spend 10 minutes on Facebook and you're gonna see every one of these stages yes, sliding yes. through your feed. And you know, as I often say, it's a postmodern platform, Facebook. So all all they do is slide across each other. They don't fit into each other. They don't fold into each other in any meaningful way. And I think that you just offered us um, an extraordinary roadmap to help do some of that work ourselves. Um, and hopefully even begin maybe role modeling and emulating some of these higher stages um, that, you know, as they speak to us. So thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. You're very welcome. I would first of all want to thank Bina for really a beautifully put together and thoughtful and mindful and heart 
embracing presentation. It really is what's at the center of the way we approach vertical development. Um, I am just happy to be the mother maybe <laughs> of some of this <laughs> and see my children really go out into the world and bring this precious information and helpful guidance in, to others in a way that is really responsible and ethical and caring, compassionate, because that seems in the end one of the few things we can be is to realize that we're all in the same boat, that human life living is often suffering and confusion and that we deserve each other's well wishes and care and attention. Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. But one question that I did have, uh, you know, for integral people who are watching this right now, as I mentioned, I think there's going to be a strong desire to look at how you've presented those, you know, highest stages of, of developmental unfolding. And again, a lot of us are going to want to emulate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a totally natural thing that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, people do that with Ken's work and, you know, you, you find an influence and you're influenced by it and you, you know, sort of, you know, try to create some new habituations that bring you closer and closer to that mark. My question, I guess, is are there any, how can I as an integralist discern whether or not my desire to emulate some of these higher stages is actually coming from a lower stage. Does that question make sense? Like, <laughs> it does. Like, yes. And there could be a part earlier and later. So okay, later you, stages yeah. and earlier stages. Yes. And that's totally fine. I would say fake it until you make it. It's a legitimate way. This is the way we've all gotten where we have. And so I think it is, um, um, it's, interesting if you can notice where this is coming from and what your motivation is and you understand enough about the stages then you can um then you can work with that then mm -hmm. you even awareness of that i think is a step in the right direction and then you can challenge your motive and there will be a time then that you will come to um, an interest without any motive and that and and then you can even recognize that it's not even you it's life impulse in you that is evolving you, you know? I can never claim that me getting here is all because of me, you know? In some ways it's remarkable that we get to learn and grow the way we do. A million things have to come together. It's like a perfect storm has to happen every day, every minute for us to reach even somewhere that, um, that we've arrived and we have this false sense of security that we brought ourselves here. And so I would say even underneath that false intention is uh, nature's grand design. Mm. Just think of all the babies, all the learning that happens for little ones. The only way they learn is by imitating and emulating. And emulating and imitating are practices mm. as well. Look at it that way. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I think the reason I asked was, um, you know, being a, a, a week in the, uh, I'm sorry, a week ago, you and I got on the phone together and we we're just talking about some future show possibilities and all that. And one of the things that we we're talking about was um, something that was becoming increasingly present for me 
which was this distinction between sort of the contents of my, let's just say values, right? I have a set of values that I can describe and here's the contents of those values. Then there's the ways that I hold those values and carry them in my day-to-day life. So for example, there's plenty of people who have, you know, again, if they were to write them down, they would have values that sound very green and yet they exercise those values. They enact those values. They carry them in their lives in, you know, maybe some insidious amber ways and sort of like there's an absolutism that gets brought in there. So it's, it just seems important to bring in sort of that second beat of like, you know, there's, there's the contents of your view or the contents of your value. And then there's how you're going about living that and expressing mm-hmm. that and enacting that in your day-to-day life. And sometimes there's a disconnect. And that disconnect, I think, is an opportunity, an invitation for reflection and for growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Another thing I noticed, Bina, um, I'm just kind of filling space while we, we see if we get some more questions here. But another thing I noticed is, is uh, there's a conversation that we've been having here in Integral Land for a couple months around the concept of anti-fragility. And it's a concept I really want to get into with you in a future episode, because I don't think it's an idea we can really fully make sense of without pushing it through yeah. sort of the, the integral polarities yeah. um, uh, uh, lens. Um, and, you know, I think anti-fragility is sort of unfortunately named. It kind of, you know, so uh-huh. we can talk all about all that in the future. But mm-hmm. what I noticed as you were presenting is that there are very real fragilities, resiliences, and anti-fragilities that express themselves at every one of these stage, stages. So there's a very real red resilience. There's a red fragility. There's a, there's a red anti-fragility. Same with amber. I'm using Ken's language here. But going all the way up and down. But what I notice is that as we move into these later stages, um, the capacity for anti-fragility as sort of this integration of resilience and fragility increases it expands we become sort of naturally more anti-fragile and i and i oftentimes hold um ken wilber's quote hurts more bothers bothers you less like the ultimate expression of integral anti-fragility that we carry with us into those transpersonal stages um which again is just something i want to throw on the table for a future conversation um Mm because i think it's Mm -hmm. fascinating and i think there's a really important uh, polarities piece and a vertical development piece uh, for us to bring to that idea. Yes, absolutely. And it's just the word is unfortunate, you know, it just, mm-hmm. it's sort of a little bit mind bending anti-fragility, even though he's talking about how systems increase in capacity through chaos and through, um, through mm-hmm. loss and through confusion. And yeah, so yeah, I'd be happy to think a little bit more about that. And I want to go and listen to some of the shows you've had with Ken which reminds me, I heard, um, so I think this is a good way to close. And that, I mean, at least I'll close my piece that the, uh, when Ken talked about um, responses to the pandemic, he pointed out two things. And because that's always the question, I've done this webinar a couple of times and the question is, well, what can we do? What can we do in this to support other people, support ourselves? And I thought it was beautiful when Ken brought up forgiveness and gratitude. Mm-hmm. That to, to forgive ourselves and others when we see us, ourselves and others acting in ways that don't match our, um, our ideal or our desire. And then to be grateful for, um, to be grateful for what we do have, this precious, uh, this precious uh-huh. life that is now, our life is an altar. Just So I wanted to just close, my, uh, close with um, 
you know, everybody should go and listen to that, that first piece of that show. Yeah, I, I, I also really loved how he, um, how he chose to respond that way. And then he goes into this whole presentation of anti-fragility in all four quadrants and, and all that. But the way he led really with the heart um, in that, in that uh, response, I think was just absolutely beautiful um, and so important now. And I think it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice test for us personally. Um, you know, talk about sort of getting some sense of where we are in our own vertical development. How far can you push that forgiveness? I mean, you know, can you forgive the people who you are blaming for this? Can you forgive, for example, I don't know, Donald Trump? Can you forgive, can you forgive the virus itself? Can you forgive all of the messiness of our very human and very flawed reactions to this? Um, can we forgive ourselves and whenever these voices earlier voices, later voices, what have you, unhealthy voices uh, present themselves to us. Um, there's, there's, a lot, um, there's a lot in the air right now and a lot mm -hmm. of resentment and frustration and anxiety that's being generated. And I feel like that can offer us sort of a panacea mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. all of that kind of background noise that we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Douglas is asking how he can teach integral theory to community college students and how can he receive permission? For, uh, so, Corey, you want to take that? Yeah, you can send a uh, check for $5,000 to Corey. <laughs> no, I'm just totally just kidding. You don't need permission. Um, you, don't, you don't need permission. If there's um, any assets on integrallife.com uh, that you would like access to that will help you um, bring this to your class, let me know. I'll be happy to provide those for you. My email is Corey, C-O-R-E-Y at integrallife.com. Um, just send me an email, man. I'll be happy to talk to you. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, any closing comments, Suzanne? I think that's a good time to close, Corey. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think so. Let's just all stay with gratitude, with awareness, and keep compassion for the times we are in and the potential for waking up and the potential for the opposite as well. Can we just be where all is, is my question for me and for all of us. Without idealizing, as Bina mentioned, without any of those things, without trying to find doors, ways out that are so natural to want to find. How is it to be right now? Not knowing uncertainty, extreme uncertainty. And do that yet with a loving heart. Well, thank you both so much. Thank um, you. you're, you're both absolutely precious to me and I'm just so happy I was able to spend this time with you today. And I'm even more happy that you're both healthy and that you're both safe. Yeah. Um, so thank you both. I love you both thank you. so much. Thank you, Corey, for the gifts you bring and your contribution. Really deeply appreciated. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for showing up and being a part of this show. We love you guys so much. Um, again, I just gave my email address. If there's any other, you know, stuff you want us to talk about with Bina and Suzanne or with Jeff or with Ken or what have you, let me know. Drop me an email. Corey, again, the E is very important. C-O-R-E-Y at integrallife.com. I won't get the email if you send it to C-O-R-Y, so um, you got to add that E. Uh, let me know what you want to hear from us, uh, how we can make ourselves even more available to you, um, and where you need support. 
and uh, we'll be happy to, to wrap some content around it for you. Uh, in the meantime, ladies, thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody.